Today we are honoured to have Pastor James Fong come and preach and share God's word. Uh, Pastor James has been at our church. He came last October while uh, I was overseas. Um, I was reminiscing on the last time, on the first time I ever heard Pastor James preach, and I realised it was when I was in high school. So this is 20-something years ago when Pastor James was also very, very young. Um, and I remember, um, I'll be honest, I don't know, I don't remember what he preached, but I remember it was a very good sermon. <laughs> um, I just remember him. Um, I'm so excited. We've been going through a series called People Matter, how different groups of people matter. And today we're talking about the ill. And Pastor James, who's a, a full-time counselor, is going to come and share God's word and his thoughts, God's thoughts on uh, people that are ill. So from wherever you are, would you welcome Pastor James to the pulpit? Thanks, Steve, for that welcome. <clears throat> Three months ago, I, I knew Australia was in a lot of trouble when I went to Woolies and found the toilet paper roll shelves empty. Why? Because when the toilet paper roll shelves run empty and toilet paper runs out, civility is flushed down the toilet. People run out of a sense of control and certainty and run out of hope and therefore people run in to depression and anxiety. During COVID-19 restrictions, in order to lower the spread of the virus, people are social distancing and social isolating to slow down the spread. Case in point, I'm preaching in front of a camera. Granted, there are a few sitting here this evening, but there is a lot of social and uh, <clears throat> social and self-isolating happening right now. Now, as a counsellor, I've also noticed that there is a trend for people to be more emotionally distancing and emotionally self-isolating during this time. Why is this so? Well, to illustrate this, I, I like to refer back to 13 years ago when I was in hospital, when I was very sick with heart failure, and the highlight for me was actually uh, having friends come to visit me. And I'll never forget, one time I had some friends visit me whilst I was in hospital, and this nurse uh, came up whilst my friends were visiting, and then she said to me in front of them, Tuppence, have you opened your bowels today? Now, if you're a visual kind of person, you're probably already imagining me sitting on the toilet, opening my bowels. My friends, my friends were quite embarrassed. They were looking down. It's like, oh, boy. And, I, and then I said, uh, yes. And then she said, so was it runny, smooth, soft? And she just kept going. And I just thought, oh, man, this is shocking. This, this is like asking me how I like my eggs done. You know, eggs over easy, runny, smooth. And I was like, oh, come on. But uh, it occurred to me that asking someone have you opened your bowels today, is like asking somebody, are you depressed today? Have you been feeling depressed? And the truth is, if someone were to ask us that question, we'd feel perhaps this is awkward, this is embarrassing, it stinks, and mostly shameful. We don't like the thought of being emotionally vulnerable and weak just like we don't like the idea of someone thinking of us 
opening our bowels. I wonder how many of us here, sitting at home, watching on this channel, or sitting here this evening here live, are feeling down, are feeling depressed, are holding it in. But you're holding it together by saying, suck it up, princess. You can do it. And we can be unconsciously dishonest when people ask, how are you going? And we say, yep, all good, all good, even when we're not okay. One way I weed out those who are genuinely, genuinely interested in me or whether they're just being polite is when they say, how are you going? And when I'm feeling depressed, I just say to them, I have a lot of potential for joy. And those that are genuinely interested and listen carefully will go, ooh, you're actually saying you're feeling depressed. But someone who's actually not listening to my answer very carefully will just go, great, that's good to hear. Because they're not actually paying attention to the fact I'm actually feeling quite low. I reckon talking about feelings of darkness and depression is even more difficult at church, to be honest. Although it's not often spoken about publicly, there's a view that if you're a strong Christian, you won't get depressed because you'll have strong enough faith to hope in God and therefore be joyful. I mean, doesn't the fruit of the Spirit say, love, joy? Therefore, you have joy. How can you be depressed? Therefore, we might conclude that if a Christian feels depressed, it's a mark of spiritual immaturity. I mean, even the songs in Sunday school, thanks, reinforces the view of happiness and being a Christian. Have you ever heard this song? The reality is, we don't. We don't like to talk about depression. We don't like to talk about the darkness because it is awkward, uncomfortable, embarrassing. We don't know what to do with it. Sadly, although we don't like to deal with the fact that, yes, even Christians can get depressed, I just want to clinically go through some quick categories with you before we open up the scriptures tonight. The three main categories of depression. First one is reactive. Reactive depression is when we um, experience circumstances that contribute to us feeling down. Things like the loss of loved ones or relationships. It's understandable why people would feel depressed or losing your job, experiencing trauma or life stresses that we're all experiencing now, the COVID-19 restrictions. The second type is endogenous and that's where you have a natural tendency to think negatively about things. There may be some genetic history or a family line of depression. And the third one is the combo, when you've got the uh, endogenous and the reactive. You've got life circumstances, also you have a tendency to getting depressed. And symptoms of depression include like impaired motivation to do functional things like have a shower, get changed, wash your face, eat food, eat too much food, Eat too little food, too much sleep, too little sleep. Voluntary self-isolation, even when there are no societal restrictions. 
emotional volatility, paranoia. You can tell when you're depressed when somebody comes up to you and they say, hi, are you going, what do you mean by that? Are you saying that I'm not okay? What do you mean by that? So you can get a little bit snappy, a little bit. That might be a symptom that you might have depression. And the other sign to look out for are addictions. You're finding that you're drinking a lot more, taking more drugs, looking at porn, anything to do with experiential avoidance so you don't have to deal with a pain that is currently in our face. So if we're watching way too much K-drama, that might also be an indicator that we're depressed. And if you do keep watching K-drama, you definitely will feel depressed by the end of it. Even though we as a church don't necessarily and explicitly deal with embrace the challenges of depression, thankfully we have a song in Psalm 88 that actually deals with this in a very authentic and a very vulnerable manner. And it's one of my favorite psalms. Why? Because it gives legitimacy to the fact that as God's people, we can feel down. And we don't have to feel bad about that. It's part of living in a broken world. And this was written by him and the Ezraite. He was one of King David's three top temple musicians. Now we had the lovely musicians playing before. Now, I'm a musician myself, and, uh, you know, forgive me if I'm stereotyping here, but I think musicians are more sensitive, perhaps, artistic, emotional, feel things very deeply. And we've got him and the Ezraite here. Fits that stereotype there. As a muso, he's feeling things very, very deeply here. And it is here included in God's word. What I think is amazing and astounding about him and the Ezraite is that he lived in a time when God's people... We're in God's place and under God's rule. This was a great time. This is a time of great happiness. Where people like living like they're in the Garden of Eden. And yet we find here a very sad musician. I mean, him and the Ezraite had a very strong spiritual heritage. If you just check out 1 Chronicles 6 verse 33, you find out that him and the Ezraite was the grandson of Samuel. The great prophet. You know, Samuel, the, the one who instituted the kingship of Israel and anointed David as the king, and yet Haman got depressed. And if you read right throughout the Old, Old Testament, we see Old Testament characters who were afflicted with this darkness. Elijah and Jonah got depressed. They even wanted to die. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. David got depressed. No one is immune from depression. Depression does not discriminate. The name Heman means faithful. And it is here in Psalm 88 that we will see Heman's faithfulness to God in the face of darkness. If you read Psalm 88, it's just been read by Steve, you wouldn't necessarily think faithfulness would leap out of the page. But this man continues to turn to God in the face of of darkness. Now, if you notice just in the superscription there, we're told this, this is actually a mascal. A mascal was a type of psalm that offered wise, instructive teaching about the realities of life. And the psalm that was just read by Steve would actually have been sung as a worshiping song by the whole congregation, whether people had experienced depression or not. And the point is, whether you have suffered depression or darkness or not, the purpose of this psalm 
is that God had you and me in mind. And that God can reach us even in the darkest parts of our life. Because if you have not yet experienced darkness or depression yet, you definitely will in the next 50 to 70 years. And this is to prepare you for that day if you have not yet experienced it and also to be more empathetic and supportive for those who are currently going through it. So tonight we want to answer the question, what is a godly way to respond when constantly depressed? In today's passage, tonight's passage, we're going to focus on three godly ways with three C's of how we can respond when constantly depressed. Firstly, cry out and complain to God. We'll see that in verses 1 to 5, verse 9, verse 13, verse 15. So first one is cry out and complain to God. Secondly, we will confess God's control. We'll see that in verses 6 to 9, and then again in verses 16 to 18. And thirdly, we're encouraged to challenge God, and that is to challenge God in brackets respectfully, in verses 10 to 12 and verse 14. So turning to our first point, cry out and complain to God. The first thing we note is that Heman cries out to God to save him. In verses 1 to 2, it says, O Lord, the God who saves me day and night, I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. Notice that when Heman cries out to God, it's not a one-off crying out for help. He does it frequently. The end of verse 1 says, day and night. I cry out before you. In fact, right throughout the psalm, in verse 9, it says, I call to you, O Lord, every day. He complains to God with daily frequency. Not only does he do it with daily frequency, he does it as a matter of daily first importance. He does it faithfully in verse 13. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Now, every depressive knows the hardest time in the day to get through is the first thing in the morning. Why? Because the thought of getting through another day of darkness is extremely daunting. So for Haman, just as faithful as his depression appears, so faithfully he cries out to God for help. And I think if every time you felt depressed, you took that as a trigger to talk to God, I think a lot of us would be talking to God a lot more frequently. Crying out to God is something we don't only do frequently and faithfully, but also fervently when depressed. Hear the words of Haman's fervent desperation. Verse 1, I cry out before you. Verse 2, turn your ear to my cry. Verse 9, I spread out my hands to you. Verse 13, but I cry to you for help, O Lord. People are often surprised when I share with them that the hardest time in my life was when I studied at Bible College, at Sydney Mission Bible College when I was 20. It was a time in my life when my niece was about to die. She was 14 years of age. My father had died when I was nine, so that 11 years had only passed from when my dad died suddenly. And I had my first broken relationship. Pulsing here, y'all. Very sad. It was a very hard time. And then my niece suddenly died. She died in July of 1995. And I spiraled into very deep darkness. 
And then to top it off, I was finding it so hard to struggle that I even failed my first year at Bible college. That is a time to consider looking towards another religion when you fail at Bible college, learning about grace. It was a time of extreme darkness for me. And then I lived at college, surrounded by Christians in a little bubble where they're all praising God and enjoying him. And I'm just sitting in the corner in the fetal position saying, I don't want to live. And I would be so down. I would be reading the Bible. I'd be reading through Jeremiah and Lamentations. And I would be marinating the Bible with my tears, not knowing what to say, not knowing what to do, not knowing who to talk to. And I would pray to God to end my life when I slept and I would wake up in the morning angry that he didn't answer my prayer. C.S. Lewis, the great children's novelist, said in his book, In the Problem of Pain, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The divine goal of painful depression is to get our attention to cry out to God in the midst of depression, frequently, faithfully, and fervently. And by doing so, we acknowledge that God is greater than our deepest darkness. God is greater than our deepest darkness. And it also teaches us and it taught me that despite no relief, when I asked God to lift me from the darkness, despite no relief, there was a lesson in being patient with grief in darkness. So I suffered from depression from the age of nine till I was 30 for 21 years of emotional sparring with God. What did I learn? Be patient with God. Be patient with grief when there is no relief. Be patient with grief when there is no relief. In crying out to God, Haman complained to God in the following ways. He was drawn to death and deeply distressed. Verse 3, my life draws near the grave. Verse 15, from my youth I have been afflicted and close to death. Now, whether Heman was in a life-threatening um, situation or whether he was actually suicidal, the bottom line is he was death warmed up. His whole life in chronic darkness, so much so that he was down in the dumps and disconnected. Verse 4 to 5, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. Verse 5, I am set apart with the dead. Like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. Now, it's actually comforting in the midst of Heman's pain that he had the courage to cry out to God and to complain to God. And the point is this crying out and complaining to God is not just a nice, godly thing to do, it's a matter of life and death. If you are sitting at home right now and you think, I'm about to end my life, Cry out to God. Tell him about it. And when we get to the end of the talk today, we will talk about application of how God can meet you where you are at. And I encourage you, please reach out and seek support. Talk to your pastor here. 
Bring our pastor Steve. Talk to your Bible study leader. Go see GP. But we'll look further at this soon. It sounds like an obvious thing to do, but in the midst of darkness and tragedy, it's often the furthest thing from our mind. I had a friend who was dying of cancer. He had stomach cancer and he only had a few months left to live. And I visited him in hospital and he had lost a truckload of weight from the cancer because he couldn't stomach any food. And it was only after I got out of hospital, after I had 10% ejection fraction with my own heart failure, facing my own death. So I felt it was important to actually prepare him to meet the Lord. And as I spoke to him and encouraged him, I reminded him to have hope in God. And then I asked his wife, have you spoken to God about your disappointments and hurt and pain about your husband's current situation? And I'll never forget, she looked at me. She said, no, I haven't. I asked for his healing. I asked for his comfort. But I never told God about my pain and hurt. Now I'm a dad. I've got three kids. My kids are 14, 12 and 9. If my kids were ever in the place where they want to die or if they're really hurting, I'd want them to talk to me about it because I love my kids. How much more our Heavenly Father, who loves every single one of you here, everyone here tonight, everyone sitting at home listening to this, God loves you. He wants to hear about your pain. He doesn't want you to do it alone. He wants you to do it with him. Talk to him. Some of you may be wondering, though, look, James, that sounds nice, but what's the point of crying out and complaining to God if our bad circumstances don't change? The psalmist goes on to bring up the next point, which is confess God's control. We'll see this in verses 6 to 9 and then again in verses 16 to 18. So how does Heman confess God's control in the midst of darkness? So why should we keep talking to God if things don't change? And there's a little phrase he uses, if you keep your Bibles open with me, in verses 6 to 8. I'll just accentuate the key phrase so you can pick it up. Verse 6, you have put me in the lowest pit in the darkest depths. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with your ways. Verse 8, you have taken me from my closest friends. Verse 16, your wrath has swept over me. Verse 18, you have taken me, my companions and loved ones. What's the phrase that the psalmist keeps bringing up? You have your wrath. In other words, the psalmist is confessing God's control in the face of darkness. Heman the Ezraite confesses God's control under what conditions? Reading on with me, verse 7, when he's drowning heavily in God's anger. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. And again in verse 16 to 17, your wrath has swept me over. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. So he's painting the picture here that depression and darkness is like drowning. Put your hand up here if any of you here have been close to drowning or being dumped by a big wave at the beach. Anyone here? Yes, we've all been dumped by waves and maybe by people, but <laughs> I don't know which one's worse, but being dumped by a wave is pretty bad. It's, it's not good because when you get up again, you get dumped again, you know. It's just, but that might happen with relationships too. But either way, it's not, it's not pleasant. It's awful. 
And the picture about drowning is that it's, emo- it's hard to breathe. Depression is when it's hard to emotionally breathe. Now, what happens if you find it hard to breathe with asthma? You go see a GP. And what do they say? I think you've got asthma. Here's a script. Take some Ventolin. You take the Ventolin. What happens? You breathe a little bit easier. Somehow, if we get depression and we have emotional bronchitis or emotional asthma, there's an Asian or Christian stigma to going to a GP and saying, hey, I think you've got depression, you've got a, uh, emotional asthma. Take some antidepressants, which is like your emotional ventilant, so you can actually breathe emotionally a little bit easier, and people just go, oh, ta ta ta. where is your faith? But you wouldn't say that to an asthmatic who gets some ventilant to go, hey, where's your faith? Just breathe a little bit harder. Trust in Jesus more. We don't have a problem with a bit of puff puff, but if we have a bit of a swallow, swallow, people just go, ugh. So let me encourage you. Let's break this stigma tonight. This is ridiculous. God gives us medication like antidepressants, anti-anxiety medication, not as a sign of a lack of faith. This is a gift. This is a way that God helps to comfort us and help us along life's way. And yet here, Haman the Ezraite found it difficult to breathe and found it difficult to cope. And yet we notice at the end of verse 7 and verse 10, there's an annotation. What does it say at the end of verse 7 and verse 10? There's a little musical term there. Steve actually slipped it out and said Selah, which is not actually meant to be said. But Selah, it's like a musical term for a pause. It's a pause. So when you read this Bible passage again, you get up to verse 7, give yourself a bit of a breather. You know, he's just talking about how he's drowning. And you know, there's a pause. And that's how depression works. The intensity of the darkness doesn't always last. But when you're in the middle of it, you think that it's going to last forever. But just wait for those salah moments. We get little pockets of relief. Even depressive people can laugh and find joy. We need to be reminded of that even with a little annotation there. Continuing on with the passage, Haman felt deserted and disgusting. In verse 8 and 18, verse 8, you have taken me from me, my closest friends, and have made me repulsive to them. And again in verse 18, you have taken my companions and loved ones from me. Now, I used to live with my mother when I was going through college. And uh, my mum told me many years later, When I was at my worst, she would say, James, you're very volatile, you're very emotionally unstable, and you're very paranoid. And my comeback would be, what do you mean by paranoid? What do you mean by sensitive? Which kind of proves the point. I was a very difficult person to talk with. Having said that, if you still talk to my wife today, she'll probably say I'm still a difficult person to talk with. The truth is, When we've got depression, it's like being a spiky echidna. We're sensitive, furry, cuddly on the inside. But we've got spikes. (laughs) And anyone who wants to get close, I stab you. I stab you. You stay away from me. I stab you. You want help? How are you going? Don't ask me how I'm going, okay? Okay, so 
is the echidna factor. And the truth is, if you want to get near an echidna, you need a lot of protection. So if you're looking after someone who's experiencing depression, I encourage you, um, cover up. Don't get too sensitive because you will get pricked. It is not easy. And yet echidnas are still loved by God. And we will go through the echidna phase now and then. Be gracious, be gentle. Because the echidna's life is a lonely and rejected life. And that is why Heman the Hezrahite became repulsive to those around him. They couldn't stand to be near him. It was a hard piece of work. Now for those of you here who don't have depression and don't know what I'm talking about, I want you to think about when you might have said something to a brother or sister in Christ to try to be helpful, but you realise just from looking at this passage tonight that maybe you might have said something that you thought was helpful but was actually hurtful and unhelpful. And I want to encourage you to apologise to someone who's going through a hard time. If you have said anything harsh, out of frustration or out of anxiety, rather than out of an unconditional love. In verse 18, Haman concludes by saying, darkness is my closest friend. I preached on this passage in Emu Plains one night, probably around a time like this, except there was an electrical thunderstorm and it wiped off all the lights and I had to preach this passage in the dark. Darkness was my closest friend at that moment. And thankfully, I had learnt most of the talk, so I was okay. But then they had to quickly pull out some candles. And I was reading the rest of the sermon, just with that little bit of light. Because the truth is, when you're in the dark, you can't see where you're going. We're scared. We don't know whether whether we're going to get hurt. We don't know if there's any certainty. It's like driving on the freeway at night time with your headlights broken and your brakes have broken as well. That's the life that Haman was going through. It's a hard thing to confess God's control in the face of tragedy because the obvious question is, if God is in control in the face of suffering, then why doesn't he do anything about it? It's worth remembering that God's people throughout the scriptures were named Israel, and Israel means struggle with God. To be truly one of God's people, we need to struggle with God in the darkness. And this is where we lead to our final point. We want to challenge God, but respectfully, in verse 10 to 12 and verse 14. Heman challenges God in two areas. Firstly, God's great ability and good character. Heman challenges by questioning God's great ability in verse 10. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? Verse 12. Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? Now, through these rhetorical questions, it seems that in the psalmist's powerless and depressed state that he thinks the answer is no. No. God, you do not have death-defying power or ability. No. People don't recognize and respect you when you were dead. No. Your, God, your greatness, God, is not known in the land of the dead. Now, central to Haman's challenge to God between verse 10 and verse 12 is questioning God's good character in verse 11 which says, is your love declared in the grave, your faithfulness in destruction? And he thinks the answer is no. 
And this is what happens when we're depressed. We start questioning God's love. We start questioning whether the God has credibility. Verse 14, why, O Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? Because God doesn't love me and is punishing me. And this is what Haman was feeling underneath all these questions of pain. Is it true that God's great ability and good character are compromised because of the bad circumstances and grief we see all around the world? Now, I have a confession to make. I am not, I am not a Star Wars fan. One, because I don't have the attention span to take in all the information of what the storyline is about. <laughs> Number two, I don't have the attention span to focus on <laughs> the amount of detail. And yet I watched, I watched The Last Jedi with my brother-in-law for a bonding exercise. He's a huge Star Wars fan. And I found, hey, I can use this one line in a sermon one day in Psalm 88, so here it goes. Amalyn Holdo said, When I served under Leah, she would say, Hope is like the sun. If you only believe in it when you can see it, Poe Dameron says, you'll never make it through the night. Hope is like the sun. If you only believe in it when you can see it, you'll never make through it in the night. It's the equivalent of saying, when it's hot, the sun is hot. And when it's cold, the sun is cold. Well, no. We know that even when the clouds are covering up the sun, or it's winter, as Steve has reminded us, that winter is coming tomorrow. Even when it's freezing cold, the sun constantly and consistently emanates its heat. How much, and yet, how many of us think, when life is good, God is good. When life is bad, God is bad. Or when I am depressed, God doesn't care. Likewise, even when you and I are going through the tough seasons of winter, and there's dark clouds over our, the night of our life, God's loving goodness still constantly and consistently shines, even when we can't see it or experience it. It may be good to struggle through the issue of God's great ability and good character, but it's even more important that you and I arrive at the right conclusion so that we can get through the nighttime of life. I wish I could have taken him and the Ezraite through a time machine. I would have taken him forward a thousand years to see Jesus Christ and all these answers, all these questions would have been fleshed out in Jesus in his incarnation, in his life, in his works, in his miracles, in his death on the cross for our sins and ultimately in his resurrection. That God's love for us is death-defying. We have an eternal death-defying hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And every question is met with yes in Jesus So in conclusion, let me encourage you. As we think of Jesus, he himself, he cried out and complained to God. 
He confessed God's control in Matthew 26, verse 39 in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not my will but your will be done. Jesus challenged God's love when he died on the cross, when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As we think of Jesus, let's consider the Romans 8 passage, which reminds us that no external or internal forces, and picking up from verse 9 in Romans 8, nor anything else in all creation, including depression, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love for us is undefeatable. God's love is greater than our deepest darkness. Now, people say to me, depression is like having a black dog. Have you heard that? You got depression, you got the black dog. Woof. It's a dog that bites hard. But I want to encourage you tonight, being a Christian, having depression is like having the opportunity to have a black belt. Having a black belt in depression is having a sparring partner to toughen your spiritual and emotional muscles. My father-in-law is a Taekwondo Grand Master, Ninth Dan. It took me 10 years before I could have a proper conversation with him. I was petrified. But I built up the emotional muscle to confront him. And through the 21 years of depression that I had, it strengthened my spiritual muscle to be more fearless, to ask the hard questions, to feel the deep emotions, to experience the darkness of sin, and to cry out and still declare Jesus is Lord and Saviour. So that when you go through the tough times in life or if COVID-19 restrictions come upon you again, you don't just get knocked down, you get up again and you do it again with the Lord. You were about to break into song then. What is a godly way to respond when constantly depressed? Three things. Cry it and complain to God. Confess God's control. Challenge God respectfully. In conclusion, if... You are hearing this tonight and you have not yet surrendered your life to Christ. May I encourage you, do not use your depression or darkness as an excuse to turn away from the living God because Psalm 88 here is written for us to remind us, Heman, even in his greatest despair, when he felt like death, recognised that God is the God of life. And I encourage you today to do depression today with Jesus. For he has paid the penalty for your sin and my sin. And he has conquered death on your behalf. But if you live without Jesus, depression is an entree to what hell looks like. Where we will be eternally isolated from the living God. But God loves you. He doesn't just love you to death. He loves you to life. Because when you, the moment you trust Jesus with your life, depression is an entree of what you and I will never experience ever again when we see God face to face. And it begins with the word, sorry. I surrender to you, God. I am sorry for living my own way. I trust in you with my life, even when life is difficult. Please forgive me. I repent, I will turn around my life from self to you and bring my grief to you instead of taking grief into my own hands. And finally, for those of you who are Christians, four nuggets, don't judge. Number two, get help. Three, 
go deep. Four, give thanks. Those of you here who don't have depression, what do you learn from Psalm 88? Number one, don't judge. Why? Because Psalm 88 tells us that depression is not a mark of spiritual immaturity, but it is a roadmap for turning back to God even when life is tough. Secondly, get help. It would be easy to conclude from this talk tonight that you're saying, oh, James, I'm hearing you saying, if I'm feeling very depressed, I just cry out to God, complain to God, challenge God, and that's it. I can just do it privately with God. I don't need help. And yet the Apostle Paul reminds us in Galatians 6 verse 2, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. The point is God helps us through people. A prayerful reliance upon our God is our priority, whether depressed or not. But if you are particularly suicidal and you're part of this congregation, or if you are severely depressed and you are finding it difficult to function, may I encourage you to humble yourself. See a GP. Get a mental health care plan. See a psychologist, a Christian counsellor. Get support. Why? Because God is the God of all comfort. Not just comfort from other Christians. God is the provider of every bit of comfort you receive possibly in this world. Because comfort is good and God is good. Now on Thursday nights over the last 11 weeks, I've been running a grief group. And because it's happened during the COVID restrictions, I've been doing it over Zoom. And when I initially set this group up and people met, Every single one of the people I approached to join this grief group were very resistant. And yet 11 weeks in, their resistance and reluctance has turned to the realisation of gratitude by being able to share our burdens with one another. They have found relief from their grief. Get help. Thirdly, go deep. Check in with each other. After service, when you're on Facebook, when you're on the phone, on the blower, don't just go superfish. Don't go superficial. Go deeper. See how each other are going. Really. When I was at college, I was so down I couldn't hide my depression. But something beautiful happened out of that. All the other depressed people at college just came out to me like a moth to a flame. It's like I was setting up a depression club like a Psalm 88 club. And because we were so depressed, we didn't want to talk about our feelings, so we'd just shorthand our feelings by using what I call the psychometric scale. So if you're feeling really down and you go, how are you going today, bro? You just go, I'm doing an 88. If you're an 88, you're a Psalm 88, which means you're super down. Now, if you're high as a kite and you're really happy and praising the Lord, you're saying, I'm pulling a 150 today. If you're feeling a little bit bitter and uncertain and questioning God, you're a 42, 43. If you're very acidic and resentful towards other people around you, you're hitting a 73. So the point of this tonight is read your Bible, read your Psalms. And if you don't want to talk, just go, I'm hitting a 42 today. All right. If you know you're hitting an 88, tell Steve Char and off you go. Finally, give thanks. Sounds like a strange thing as an application for today's passage, but 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. Thankfulness for even the darkest of experiences reminds us that God is even using our pain to make us more like Jesus so that we can be used by him.
Don't judge. Get help. Go deep. Give thanks. Let's pray.